Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I'm speaking with Don McPherson. He's an entrepreneur who built a company called Modern Survey, sold it to an even bigger company, and then exited with some money in his pocket. It's the American dream, but Don isn't resting on his laurels. He's launching a new company called 12 Geniuses that's focused on fixing the future of work for everybody. Don's on the show today because he's my friend and I absolutely love him, but he's also here to talk about his journey as a successful tech founder. And here's a spoiler alert. He wasn't born of wealth, nobody handed him a check early in life, and he's ruthlessly pragmatic about his finances. I'm really excited to share this discussion with you because Don and I are live at the kitchen table, literally, and we talk about finances, privilege, and how you can set yourself up financially and ultimately enjoy your work. So sit tight, everybody. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work and Don McPherson. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. It's Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with my good friend, Don McPherson. Don, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Lori? I'm great. Why don't you tell everybody where we're recording from today? We are high above the Mississippi River in downtown Minneapolis in my condo. I love it. It's our first live show with an audience of none. (laughs) All the kids are out of the house. (laughs) And I'm here today to visit you and your new family. You have a new one in your life. We do. Greta Page is going to be one month on the 15th. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Yeah. Well, you know, we met in the world of technology and we've had a friendship now going on a decade. And I wonder if you can think back to when we met, what were you doing and how were you fixing work then? At that time, I was a co-founder of a company called Modern Survey, and we had a suite of products that helped measure the employee life cycle to help organizations understand if their employees were being onboarded effectively, if their employees were engaged, why people were leaving the organization, how people were performing, and how effective the leaders of the organization were. So people liked that tech, right? I mean, it was very successful. You had a good run. Who were some of your customers that you're most proud of? The ones that come to mind, we worked with T-Mobile and we did some very innovative things for them. So this was before the era of pulse surveying, which has become quite popular. And what is pulse surveying? Pulse surveying is instead of doing an annual employee survey, you might do something quarterly or monthly. And for T-Mobile, we did a survey every two weeks. Wow. That sounds like a pain in the butt for everybody. How did you make it not a pain? We only did a sample of their employees and we did the administration based on their birth date. And so we were going out to a 126th of the organization every (laughs) every two weeks. Yeah. And what the CEO wanted to know is it's it's a volatile business, lots of rumors about acquisitions. Yeah, and a lot of turnover, right? And lots of turnover. And so he really wanted to see if the organization was susceptible to external factors. And he wanted to make sure that he was communicating with employees if if there was something going on that was disrupting how people felt about the organization. So I was really proud of that. And then I did a lot of work in healthcare, which was really exciting because 
I don't think there's a, an industry that's more important to have an engaged workforce than healthcare. Yeah, so, or more important to America, by the way, as our population ages and we need more and more people to work in healthcare. How do you recruit and retain great people? So you were helping with that? Helping with that, absolutely. And uh, especially making sure that their employees are engaged. And so it's, you can imagine some of the challenges with that. Uh, you know, a nurse's manager might have 40 or 50 people reporting to him or her. And, you know, they just don't have an opportunity to interact face-to-face -face frequently. And so this is a really important tool and an important diagnostic to help under, understand what the health of the organization is. Yeah, that's real work in America. So you are helping to fix real work. I love that. Absolutely. So, all right. So you have this company called Modern Survey. And then what happened? About two years ago, my partners and I decided it was time to exit, and so we wanted to do some other things with our lives, and we did. And we sold to a Fortune 500 company, and I worked there for a little over two years. I had a great time, uh, no regrets about the acquisition. I think sometimes there are founders out there who have regrets about the choice they made to sell the organization. No regrets. It's in really good hands. They've done great things with the technology and helping serve their, their clients. And I had a great two-year run running uh, global talent marketing for them. So that was exciting. I learned a lot of things, traveled to about 20 countries wow. during that time. So, yeah. Well, I think about your journey um, to the point where you exited a company, which is every founder's dream, right? To sell your company and to be successful. And I think that we have an image in our mind that the people who do that are tech bros in Silicon Valley. And here we are in Minneapolis, and you're certainly not a millennial tech bro, not at all. So can you tell me, are you, have you always been an entrepreneur or what's your career journey been like up until this point? I would say that I'm not a natural entrepreneur. I would say I'm more of a risk taker and somebody who really values autonomy. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, it's, it's one of my top five values, freedom or autonomy, however you want to categorize it. I'm in the process of starting my fifth business, though. So while I may not be a natural entrepreneur, it's, it's where I've settled. And, and, and so you asked about my career arc. I started out in financial services doing customer service 25 years ago. And I realized that that was not where I wanted to be. And so I sold everything and decided to move to Germany. So I bought a one-way ticket in the mid-90s to move to Germany, put $2,000 in my pocket. And that's really where this foundation of taking risks and really believing in myself started. And yeah. Wait, wait. You just bought a one-way ticket to Germany, right? You had no internet at the time, right? You didn't do a lot of research. What made you want to go to Germany? I wanted to learn German. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured that was an expedited path. Yeah, absolutely. You would be forced to do that because it's only a one-way ticket, right? So where did you live? How did you figure out how to live in Germany? I knew one person who lived there. And I had two years prior to that, I had lived in Denmark. And I had a host family. And the host daughter was living in Hamburg. And I told her, I'm thinking about moving to Germany. She said, well, you can stay with me. And I stayed with her for a month in her attic. She had a one-bedroom apartment, but it had an attic. So it was on the top floor. And the attic was about four feet high. Okay. And I'd scurry up at night and you know, Wait, read tell, my books. Wait, tell everybody how tall you are. I'm about 6'3". <laughs> <laughs> so it was super claustrophobic, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. It and was, motivating to get out on your own. It was cozy. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and after that month, I did some networking, so that's one of my strengths is 
to be able to network and communicate and, and connect with people. And I contacted this guy who played basketball over there, and he ended up getting me a tryout with a team over there. I had played college basketball and high school basketball, and, and uh, I, I tried out with this team, and they said, we need you on our team. And, wow. and you know, a couple couple days later, I went back up to Hamburg and moved all my things down to a small town called Zost, about 50,000 people. It has a thousand-year-old history, and it's really, really cool town. I've been, I've been back a couple times in the last year. So your career arc is that you were um, a risk taker. You went over to Germany, and so that was really the one of the first or early moments in your life where you took a risk. How did you end up getting to Modern Survey then? Because uh, there's a there's a bit of a gap in your resume. What did that look like? Yes. Uh, fortunately, my sister was looking out for me. She was working in human resources at American Express, and she knew I was coming back. She called me and said, I've got a temp job for you. It's going to be two months. You're going to be making $20 an hour. Do you want it? And I was like, yes, yeah, abs- absolutely. that's real money. It was it, At the time, it was real money. And that's when I met my future business partner. And he was working as a contractor. And I was like, oh, well, he was getting in at 10 in the morning. Everybody else was getting in at 8 in the morning. And he, <laughs> and he would work until 6 o'clock at night. And then he'd, he'd go out and listen to some music sure. and have a few beers. And and then show up again at 10. I'm like, well, that looks good to me. How can I become a contractor? (laughs) And I just kind of followed his path, his route. And he had an idea about starting this company to do surveys online. I had no idea what that meant. And his brother became our third partner. And we founded Modern Survey in 1999. So I would imagine that uh, you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you couldn't go to your parents for startup money. And certainly the VC community isn't what it is today. So how did you get the money to start this company? We started the company with $1,000 a piece. So we chipped in a total of $3,000. Patrick, uh, the, the partner of mine who was working at American Express with me, had a little office space and it was maybe $600 a month or something like that. Wow. And we started there and we started to get some clients. So we really bootstrapped it with this initial $3,000 of investment. So you took a company from $3,000 of investment all the way through to an exit, a successful exit. Yes. That is the American dream. It is. So why are you, um, you know, you could rest on your laurels right now. You could retire in Hawaii, right? You could do whatever you wanted to do, allegedly. Why are you starting a new business? Why do you do what you do? What's driving you? You said one value is independence or autonomy. I love to work. I do, and I love what I do. And and one of the foundational things that I do is help people reach their potential. And there's nothing more gratifying or fulfilling than doing that. And I believe that everybody can perform at an extraordinary level if they're in the right condition and if they are willing to put forth the effort. Well, that's the key, isn't it? It's one of them, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And and what I want to do is help people get there. Oh. And, that, and that's what has inspired me over the last 20 years. Well, in this segment, I have one final question for you because you've been able to build a career you love and a life that matters, which makes you a good candidate for my friend Jen Jen McClure's podcast, Impact Makers, because that's her whole philosophy, right? You are an impact maker and certainly one in my life. 
And I know you weren't born of wealth, right? And you've built this great life for yourself and your family. How have you done it? I pay me first. And that has enabled me to do everything that I've wanted. That has given me the freedom that I talked about earlier. So you pay you first. Yes. It's a philosophy that I started 25 years ago when I, when I got my first career job. Well, everybody, when we come back, we're going to learn more about what paying you first really means. So sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work and Don McPherson. Hey, everybody. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with Don McPherson. Don, how you doing? Great. Good. You feeling strong? Very strong. It's about 89 degrees with about 90% humidity, so a perfect sweltering day in oh, Minneapolis. Oh, man. I thought there was no humidity in Minneapolis. What, was I misled? Who lied to you? <laughs> it is pretty gross. There, there's no humidity in January. Well, right. That's fair. And you know, I've never been here in the summertime. It's really beautiful in Minneapolis. It's gorgeous. Thank you. Don't tell too many people. I won't. I won't. That's my secret about Raleigh as well. I don't want anybody to know. <laughs> All right. Well, before the break, we were talking about your philosophy. And you said that you pay you first. Can you tell me more about what that means? When I was in high school, I saw an advertisement for a financial services company. And basically, I think it was like J.P. Morgan or, you know, one of these big insurance companies. And basically what it said is if you save $300 a month from the time you're 22 until you're 30, it would be like saving $300 a month from the time you're 30 until you retire at 65. Basically saying, get started early. Yeah, and wait, you saw that when you were in high school? In high school. On a commercial? It made an impression on me. Wow, J.P. Morgan's doing their work. (laughs) I think it might have been the Hartford or something. We we don't want to give J.P. Morgan too much credit. Sure, of course. (laughs) But it, it made an impression on me, and I thought, well, that's that's interesting uh, if you get started early. And as I was leaving college, I got an offer to work for American Express, and they were going to pay me $17,000 a year. And that was, at that time, more money that I could, than I could spend. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get started right out of the gate, saving $300 a month. That, that was going to be my... Your benchmark. My benchmark. Yeah. And it actually works out to about 20% of my salary. And I did the math, and if, and if I consistently did that, about 18 months to 24 months in, I would have about a year's runway. And I thought, well, this is going to enable me to quit my job whenever I want and do whatever I want or pursue whatever I want for a year or, you know, nine months. And I did that. 
And I was very disciplined about it. And that enabled me to sell everything and buy a one-way ticket and move to Germany. So I ha this, is, this is how I funded it. And I actually got paid a little bit to, to play basketball over there. So, you know, I wasn't spending all of, all of the money that I had saved up. And, and I got a job working in a warehouse over there. So, so I actually came back with more money than I left with. But it was still, it enabled me to have this freedom to, to experiment and to go on this adventure. Yeah, wait, you don't come from a family of savers, though, do you? Do you have this value in your Because I certainly don't. My family had five bucks in their pocket, and they spent it right away. That's yeah. how I was raised. Similar. Similar. And my, my older sister, who got me the job at American Express, uh, somehow we became very astute with our money. Yeah. And so it was not ingrained in us. It, it wasn't. But I think we... and. My parents are fantastic people. They're my heroes. So I, I don't mean to, to to disparage them in Absolutely, any way. Absolutely, yeah. But they didn't really teach us the financial competence. We kind of we kind of learned by what we didn't want. And my my parents struggled when we were younger, and it was very difficult on us. And I, I decided that that's not how I want to live, and that's that's why I became a saver and and why. You know, to me, money is is freedom, and it gives me opportunity, and and that's why I've developed this discipline. So, tell me a little bit about your background, because I think a lot of people who hear someone talk about savings often assume that they come from a privileged background or come from some sort of position where it's nice to be you, but I can't possibly save. So what was your upbringing like? Did you, you didn't grow up in Minneapolis and you certainly weren't born and raised in the high rise that we're in right now. That's right. I grew up in northern Minnesota in a mining community and my stepdad worked in a mine and through observation, not just with my family, but members of the community, I thought you worked in the job that paid you the most money you could possibly get. And I saw people doing that. So an opportunity came up to be a truck driver and you went from being an assistant furnace operator to a truck driver because it paid you $1.50 more an hour. And I just thought that's how work was. And I thought that work was always awful and it was a cross you had to bear. And then I started, when, after I started my professional career, I realized no, it, work can be actually quite fulfilling, quite meaningful. But that was my upbringing as, you know, very working class, people who were living typically paycheck to paycheck. At one point, my stepdad was laid off for almost five years. Wow. And he, he went around, he worked on a farm for a while, he went back to school and, to learn how to cut hair and worked as a barber for years. And so... It was, wait, wait, what did, what did you learn from that experience? Because watching an older man be unemployed, for all of us, I've had that experience myself, is often very humbling. It's a humbling experience. Well, I wouldn't call him unemployed right. because I have incredible respect for him. And he is absolutely one of my heroes. He actually taught me my work ethic. He So to give you a little background on yeah, his story. please. Throughout his career, he still works today. He has called in sick one time. Wow. And, and that time he was sick to the point of losing his lunch in his, in his helmet. And he said, well, I think I'm probably too sick to continue working. So <laughs> that's that, a, that's that a was, generation that does that, by the way. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And 
what I learned from him is that there is no obstacle in the way that he won't overcome to provide for his family. Wow. And so he, he went to South Dakota or North Dakota to work on a farm for a while. And he drove 75 minutes one way to, to, um, to be a barber in, in Duluth, Minnesota, which was, you know. Was that the big town? One of the big towns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Duluth. It's lovely. That's yeah, nice, yeah. It's a nice absolutely. city. Yeah. But, but I realized that I never wanted to be in that position. And I, you know, that, and that's why I've kind of lived the life that I have is, you know, saving pretty much always putting 20 to 30% of my gross salary into savings so that gave me the freedom and autonomy to to live the life that I wanted. So you pay you first, always um, in the good times and in the bad times, is that true? Because as an entrepreneur owning your own business, there must have been times where your business almost went under, right? Everybody has that story. Were you still following that philosophy of you pay you first? No. In 2009, I couldn't. And at that point, my partners and I had a discussion and we said, we've got maybe two weeks left. If we don't find additional funding, the company's going to go under. And, you know, we kind of looked at our bank accounts and we said, okay, well, it's time for us to chip in. And so we all chipped in about $100,000, something, something. Uh, but you had that money. I had that money. And, and they had some too. And, you know, had, had I not, live by this philosophy that company would have gone under and the story that I'd be telling right now would be much different so that was key having tens of thousands of dollars I, I think at, at the time I probably had a couple hundred thousand dollars yeah. that, that I could have invested back into the business I didn't have to roll it all in there but we did and we decided we're not laying one single person off and that that was a critical point in our business. And so at, at that point, we went months and months without drawing a salary. We invested back in the business. We were able to regain our footing while our competition was shedding employees, unable to, to meet their client needs because they had, you know, they just weren't able to provide service in the way that uh, they had in the past. Yeah. And, it, and it worked to our benefit. So when you pay you first, there are also personal sacrifices that you make. You're not um, driving the latest car. Right. You're not wearing the most fashionable clothing. <laughs> you're not traveling all over the world, or maybe you are, but you're doing it um, because you've been able to save and provide a cushion for yourself. So tell me a little bit about some of the personal sacrifices that you've made in order to follow this philosophy. A lot of it was delaying things that my peers chose not to delay. So you, you hit on one thing, the car. The, the car to me is, it, it's such a ridiculous expense. And I think people get that much more now than 20 years ago. But to to buy a forty or $50,000 vehicle because it's a status symbol, yeah. it just doesn't make sense if you're 25 or 30 years old. To, to me, it, it never made sense. But it makes sense to a lot of other 25 to 30-year-olds who are trying to keep up with the Joneses and are living on extended credit, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think it's actually a bit of a form of slavery. You, you know, these credit card companies or these debtors, they, they own a bit of you. Yeah, and you're working for them and you're not working for you. And so I don't want to, you know, uh, 
make it so dramatic as that, but I do see a lot of people who are behaving in a way that they wouldn't because they owe so much to to banks and credit cards. Absolutely. And, and, and so that was one of the things. The other thing is I bought a house, but it was a duplex and my renters were able to cover my mortgage. So Smart. This is like, well, this is, you know, this is going to help me build some equity. I have a place to live. I need a place to live. I made it nice. And, but I'm going to do it in a way that is, is going to be really financially responsible for me. And I, I lived in that place for about 15 years. Some people, I, I remember one friend came over one time and he said, why are you here? You could, you could have a nice place in the suburbs and, you know, have a nice yard. And I was like, oh, I really like it here. And I like this way of living. And, and it just gives me a sense of security to know that I don't have this mortgage hanging over my head and I'm not fully responsible for it. I lived there for 15 years and, and eventually sold it and tripled my money. And it was a great investment. Yeah, that's really great. I also think there's one important thing that we haven't talked about yet. What you've delayed is parenthood. Right. And some would say adulthood, right? <laughs> <laughs> but parenthood, definitely. Yes, I did. And I know that not everybody is able to do that, right? So I'll be 50 in a couple of in a couple of months. I can't believe it. It's hard to believe. Yeah, amazing. Uh, I'm having a hard time believing it myself. <laughs> and, and I have a, a daughter who will be two and a half next month. And we just celebrated, we'll be celebrating one month for our second daughter. Yeah. So I, I did delay that. And, you know, I, I'm grateful for it because we're able to do things with the children that I would have, we would have really struggled to do in my 30s or, you know, even even a decade ago. And, and you know, it, it was, it, it's probably a tough decision for many people to make, but I, I don't regret it at all. No, you don't. I think there's a complexity with being an older parent, right? There are risks that come with that. And also, you told me this time it's three times harder with two babies. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it's not twice as hard. It's three times as hard. But um, but I'm more patient, yeah. And I think the the work experience has helped me be uh, be more level headed. And and going through that crisis almost ten years ago has just made me confident that I can deal with anything. And I've got a great partner who is you know every bit my equal. And oh and yeah, then, and maybe then, more. And then some, yeah. <laughs> yes, she is. Not, yeah. not maybe more. Certainly more. <laughs> well, I love your life advice of you pay you first. I think that's really important. But why do you think it's important for my listeners to hear that? Why is that so important for their employee experience, for their uh, sense of engagement? What does that advice mean for them? It means that if they are financially secure or free, they never have to work in a job that they don't love. And that's powerful. And, it, you know, I, I, I just have reached the point where I realize that I never want to be miserable at work. I want to always love what I do. And I've, you know, that's been the case for, for years and years. But there have been times where I've struggled and realized, ah, this is really not what I should be doing. And I know that I can make that make that change. And I, I believe that we can do our best work if 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 we provide ourselves with that security and that that freedom to move on to the the right place. Is it ever too late for people? Can they start now? I know so many people who are middle aged, like my age, 
have credit card debt, are working in jobs that they hate, have to put their kids through college, have all of these financial obligations, and feel as if they have to work in that job and they don't have a lot of options. So do you have any advice for people to get started paying themselves first when they have all of these other people to pay? I do have some advice. And, you know, it would start with seeing a really good financial advisor and starting to understand how they might consolidate their debt, what options are out there. Uh, you know, just using uh, somebody in my family as an example, this person had multiple credit cards. She was paying 19 to 25% APR on those credit cards. Yeah. And and she had no idea where to turn. And, and we had a conversation about it and we figured out a way in which she could consolidate all that debt, uh, really reduce what she was paying out on a minimum, uh, on a, a monthly basis. And she reduced the, the uh, interest to 8%. Wow. So it enabled her to relieve this incredible burden. That's all she thought about. All she thought about was, how am I going to pay next month's credit card? And so talking to a professional and and getting some good advice around how to consolidate debt uh, um, and, and then really looking at what your budget is. Uh, or maybe getting a budget, right? Yeah, yes. yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, I'm an advocate for, for really making um, personal finance as a part of a curriculum early on. At high school, even middle school, I think it's something that uh, we have not done very effectively in this country. No, not at all. I think about how many people are um, financially illiterate and don't understand uh, just the basics of how to manage a checking account or you know, how to manage what's coming in and what's going out or really the difference between 14% interest and 25% interest or whatever on these different credit cards. Do you worry about the future workforce knowing that so many people who are coming up through school are financially illiterate? What's that going to do to workers in the future? Because they're going to be stressed. It's going to impact their well-being. Well, I don't know. That's my opinion. What do you think? I, I know this. Absolutely. We, we created something called uh, a term for people who are stuck in their jobs people who are disengaged but have no plan to move on. And they're called prisoners in the workplace. So we created this at, at Modern Survey and the company that bought us uh, has continued it. And these, I believe that there's a large percentage of prisoners. So it's about one in 12 employees who are prisoners in the workplace. Of those one in 12, I believe a big percentage of them are financially stuck. In fact, we know this, we saw this in the research that they felt if they moved to another job, they would get paid less. They were not qualified to get a job at another company that would pay them as much or more. And so they just were stuck. And what does that do to the company? What does that do to the individual? Well, they're not their best self. They can't do their best work. When they go home, they're miserable. They're not the, the best husband or wife, father or mother, community member. It's, it's awful. It's awful for them. And they just have no other opportunities or no other recourse. So th th this is a big problem in our country. So what can companies do? And is it really the company's responsibility to make sure that employees manage their money well? I think one of the things companies could do is probably 
pay people more. You know, wages have been stagnant for many years, but if you have some ingrained behaviors, no matter how much you pay somebody, they may still have these problems. So did you offer any solutions or see any good solutions in your research? There are, there are a number of things that, that organizations can do. In a, you brought up something that is a problem. You, you can make $200,000 a year and still be a prisoner. I know people who are, yeah. who are doing that. And that, you should be able to raise a family on that amount of money. And it, you know, with a few communities, maybe San Francisco or New York yeah, as exceptions right. because they're very, very expensive. But that's that's a lot of money. And and it it has to start at the individual level. The the company can do some things, but it's really not the company's responsibility. They can they can offer some programs, they can help teach financial literacy. But if you're gonna overspend, you're never gonna get out of it. And it's it's always going to be this anchor around your neck. You know, one of the things that really um, gets me going about the concept of overspending is how expensive it is to be a woman compared to being a man. And so I think there are some things that companies can do. And, you know, we pay extra for tampons. We have to look a certain way. We have to dress a certain way. As women age, they feel pressured to look younger in the workforce. And I think there are some things culturally and from a work perspective that we can do to, you know, remediate these concerns. But... We've got a lot of cultural pressures and ways and systems that bear down on women that don't affect men the same way. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, it's a big topic, probably a topic for another webinar. But I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I will, right. I will just give a, a, you know, a personal example. Michelle, who is my partner, uh, and I have had this conversation a lot recently because now neither of us are working i'm taking some time off to start my new company and she's on maternity leave and it's questionable whether or not she'll return to her job so we're both home we have two children we look at each other at the end of the day and we're like how do people do this and work jobs yeah absolutely the now, price of daycare is insane though it, yeah. it's unbelievable now think about what it's like for a single mom. I have tremendous respect for a woman who can raise children or a child and hold down a full-time job. How they do it is a is a modern miracle to me. They talk about the miracle of birth and I've seen it now a couple <laughs> times. It's a miracle, yes. but but what I just described is is absolutely incredible and there are very little uh, in tr there's very little in terms of support systems or nonprofits that are helping these folks. So here we are, two very capable people, not working, and at the end of the day, we're just wiped. Yeah, right? um, you are. Yeah, absolutely. You've talked about this, though, that there are a lot of resources for women before they have babies and for single moms before they have the baby. But once they have the baby, there's no national not-for-profit for single moms, is there, or not one that you've seen? There may be, but I've done a little bit of research on it, and it's been a couple of years since I've done it. No, there, 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 there really isn't, and so you, know, you have to get it from your community, you have to get it from your family. If you're living in a community where your family isn't, you're in really tough shape, and so uh, you know, I have a great deal of of respect for any parent who is putting their the well-being of their children first and their education first but if you're single and you're doing it you're 
just get in line for those wings because there's a special place in heaven for you. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. That's true. That is true. Well, there is definitely something companies can do in terms of paid leave and family leave and support for single mothers. So I, I, I believe that. I wonder as we wrap up, if there's one message you can leave with our listeners, what would that be? Well, I think it's it's a message that I've been honing and preparing for the, the launch of 12 Geniuses, which is my new company. And that is, it's a four-part message. The world is better than ever. Despite what you might see in the press or on the news, we're living longer, we're healthier. Poverty globally is being eliminated in a, in a very significant way. So this is a great time to be alive. The second thing is that if you're an employee, you're able to add value at a, at a greater level than ever before in human history. It's, it's phenomenal. And, and so make sure that you continue to learn and, and build the skills that are going to keep you relevant in the future. The third thing is that the world is changing quickly. And we are going to see a wave of technologies that will make mobile and social media look like nursery school. I'm talking about artificial intelligence and robotics, 3D printing, wearables, the internet of things. All of these things are going to change the way we live and work. And then the fourth thing is most people are not ready for it. Most people are not preparing themselves either through learning or being agile within their industry or within their area of expertise to harness these changes. And so this is what I'm looking to do with 12 Geniuses is help individuals, teams, and organizations prepare for the changes that are about to come in the next decade. Really interesting stuff. And I think one of the things that's so apparent to me now is that as we shift and the economy shifts and the world of work shifts, you give yourself an advantage by paying yourself first. Absolutely. It's it's one of the greatest ways to to give yourself the freedom and autonomy to do what you want and do what you love and and succeed and maybe to prepare for the apocalypse i don't know <laughs> that's my cynical point of view <laughs> do not be cynical because uh, it, as i said the world is better than ever and these technologies this this new way of living and working will continue to make it better i i, I truly believe that well, I hope so. Now, Don, tell everybody where they can find you and learn about 12 Geniuses a little bit more. The best place is to find me on LinkedIn. It's Don McPherson, M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N, and I'm in Minneapolis. And you can look us up at 12geniuses.com. That's 12geniuses.com. And tell us a little bit about what 12 Geniuses encompasses very quickly. Well, I'm going to do professional speaking, uh, so I'll go out to associations and, and organizations to work with their leadership teams and help educate them on what the world is like, It's that, why it's truly better than ever, and how these technologies are going to change the way we live and work. And we'll have consulting, so we'll do workshops to help organizations prepare for these for these changes. And I'm going to do a podcast uh, called 12 Geniuses. And um, I'm going to be the 13th genius on that show, right? Season two, guest, <laughs> guest number one. That's exactly perfect, right. Perfect, perfect. Well, thanks again for uh, joining us today, Don. It was really a pleasure. My pleasure. All right, everybody. We'll be right back after the break. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? Then you need a secret weapon. Someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. 
At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said, everything. Book a call with a podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Don McPherson. You can learn more about Don and his new company in the show notes. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Cassina, Megan Doherty, and Gerson Lefleche make the show great. Hear me anytime, anyplace, anywhere if you subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And connect with me at L. Rudiman or Let's Fix Work if you have feedback for the show. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR. Liberty sees me, it stands by me, and celebrates me for who I am. When I come into the office, I feel that I belong here. I don't have to be corporate America Gabby. I can just bring Gabby to work. Reach your potential and find a job you love at Liberty Mutual. We offer development training, rich benefits, and a culture that lets you bring your whole self to work so you can pursue your tomorrow today. Ready to consider a career at Liberty Mutual? Find out how at LibertyMutualCareers.com.